It ain't what you don't know that kills you, it's what you do know that ain't so. Now in this episode, let's drill into the mental model of Agile, how it arose, why it's better than alternatives, and why it's great for product managers and what we need to know about it. There's a lot of myths and realities about Agile. So Agile definitely is a tool for executing better, especially around building software. It works for other things as well, but around software it works great. It can be a lever for learning faster, but it's not about having better ideas, and it's not necessarily about improving quality, although there's a side effect that often occurs. Agile also doesn't make the team faster. It can help the team deliver value faster, though, if you do it right, which does make you look faster. And Agile's not magically cheaper. It's cheaper simply because it generates less waste, and waste is expensive. Hi, this is Nels Davis, and you're listening to episode number 90 of the Secrets of Product Management podcast. You can find the notes for this episode and links to all the resources I mentioned at secretsofpm.com slash 90. The goal of this podcast is to give you the information and insights to help you create better outcomes. The episodes are designed for you to take action on immediately. I want your mind racing, and I want you thinking to yourself, I can do that, and I am leveling up. Now, before we get to the main topic, if you're just getting into product management or if you're busily leveling up into more senior PM positions, don't forget there are a ton of resources in my previous episodes on storytelling, persuasion, prioritization, working with developers, working with marketers, and on my website. And if you want to accelerate your leveling up, go to calendly.com slash nilsdavis slash consultation for a free 45-minute coaching and discovery call, no obligation. I'll put a few links to all these resources in the show notes page at secretsofpm.com slash 90. Now let's get into it. In this episode, we'll drill into the mental model of Agile, how it arose, why it's better than the alternatives, and why it's great for product managers and what we need to know about it. So first, let's talk about why Agile is awesome. In terms that most people don't think about, although I did get a lot of this understanding from an outstanding book by Dean Leffingwell, which I will share in the show notes, of course. And then let's talk about what this means for product managers. Agile is definitely better for us. It helps us keep our focus on value, but we do have to keep our distance from the methodology. So what is Agile good for? Well, Agile does potentially help you respond more flexibly with more agility, using the dictionary definition of the word agility. It can also reduce your dependence on predicting the future. I've had several podcast episodes about the difficulty of predicting the future. As I always say, if you're really good at predicting the future, then you shouldn't be doing product management anyway. You should be betting on horses or playing the stock market. And I'll talk about why I'm talking about predicting the future as we go through. Now, to get to the roots of Agile, it's good to go back to first principles when you're trying to understand something and get the maximum value. So let's talk about the origins of Agile, the roots of it. Now, in the old days, there was the product requirements document, or also known as a PRD. And let's talk a little bit about requirements in the PRD and the waterfall methodology that often was used with the PRD. Now, some of these insights, as I said, I want to credit to Dean Leffingwell. He was a longtime architect at Rational, then at IBM, and then at version one. His book, Scaling Software Agility, was a big influence on these ideas I'm about to share. So waterfall methodology is about predicting the future so you can use your development resources most efficiently. The PRD had all the requirements for the new system. That was the product requirements document. The most important, high-value, potentially high-risk pieces and lots of less important, less valuable pieces. And the project could not start until this whole PRD was reviewed, 
signed off on, and then a design was made and reviewed and signed off on, and then estimates were made based on the design and reviewed and signed off on, and then the schedule was made to try to create the most efficient use of the dev resources against that giant set of estimates and design, and that was signed off on, and then the development could start. So Waterfall in this old approach had four big problems. First of all, it obviously is really dependent on accurate estimates if your goal is to use your resources efficiently. It's also very resistant to change. And it not only has terrible time to value in theory, the value comes at the end of the project when it gets delivered, and it always had worse time to value in practice because the project is always late and often had risky, meaning typically the more valuable parts, often have to be cut to help keep as close as possible to the schedule. So the schedule often wins when you're doing waterfall versus value. And there is little ability to handle risk. Now, I'm not going to go into the first three items on that list, dependence on estimates, resistance to change, and terrible time to value. But I'm going to talk a little bit about the last one, inability to handle risk. So waterfall works best when nothing changes between the publishing of the PRD and the delivery of the project. This is because estimation is such an important part, which is what enables the efficient layout of the schedule. And if something changes, that is, if a requirement is found to be wrong or a new requirement is added, then all the estimates have to be redone and the scheduling has to be redone. This is very expensive and difficult and not fun. So waterfall project management in its nature is resistant to change and project management methodologies typically make handling change very expensive for the person asking for the change partly because it just causes a big impact. Now, this is true whether or not the change is considered good or bad in itself. If a requirement is found to be incorrect, the change management cost is the same, as is the looking down the nose of the project manager at having to take yet another change request. However, there is a sad fact of life in these modern times, which is really any time, to be honest, but it is worse now, and that is that change happens. Change happens all the time. Requirements are found to be faulty all the time. The thing you thought you knew for sure turns out to be wrong all the time. Now, Waterfall is designed to be bad at handling this change, but the change occurs anyway against Waterfall wishes. And what happens? Well, the project gets re-estimated. The schedule is changed again. Something is cut from the original vision to make the schedule work, not because of anything related to value, simply to make the schedule work, with the result that the project ends up taking longer and often doesn't deliver the value it was originally supposed to deliver due to all the cuts that happened. Especially if the estimates were wrong in the first place, which they always are, because predicting the future is impossible. So the reality is that because of all this, lots of waterfall projects failed. Now the technical definition of failed is, did not produce the expected results. So failed in that metric includes a project that was delivered, but it didn't do all the things that the users expected it to do. But in many of these cases, the projects actually literally failed to produce any results. They were canceled. And the remainder that did get rolled out usually were late, and most did not deliver the value expected, and often were unrolled out, and some other solution was found or bought instead. Waterfall did not and does not have a good track record. Now, there are some projects, not software projects typically, where a waterfall approach can be effective. I'm not going to go into those. They are rare, and they're not the projects that you're likely to wor be working on if you're listening to this podcast. So as you can probably tell, an alternative was needed, and Agile was born out of this realization and some good thinking on the part of a lot of people. 
Waterfall's focus was on taking the desired outcome, the whole thing, the big kahuna, and getting it finished as fast and efficiently as possible by doing clever scheduling based on expert estimates. Now, we've seen that change and bad estimates combine to make this unsuccessful in many cases, resulting in projects that either don't complete or don't deliver the expected value. So the fundamental thinking behind Agile said, what if we focus on delivering value first and we don't worry as much about efficiency? And we bite off little chunks at a time, so if a change happens, we're not too far down the wrong road. And this is the essentials of Agile from my perspective. Now, there's other ways to express this, but this is, I think, a really useful way to think about it. Focus on delivering the most valuable thing you can as fast as you can right now, not worrying if it's the most efficient way to get a lot of value out to market, just saying we're going to start with the most valuable thing and we're going to do little bits of it at a time in case things change, in case we learn, in case the market changes, whatever might be the change that happens. You've probably heard that there's this thing called the Agile Manifesto, and it says things like, we value working software over comprehensive documentation. I don't think a lot of people understand what that means. Well, what does it mean? Does it mean they don't want to document their code? Well, actually, nobody wants to document their code. That's just reality. But that's not what this means. The Agile people said, what if we start building the most valuable part of this project first before the whole project is documented? In other words, what they're talking about by focusing on the highest value piece, they don't need the whole PRD to get started, just the part that represents the most value or the highest risk. They could get started on that part of the project first while the rest of the PRD was being written or perhaps not even being written at all. That is when they said documentation, they meant these giant PRDs, the giant design docs that were built off the PRDs and the giant Gantt charts that were built off the design docs and the estimates. So note that they still need requirements but only for the most valuable or risky components, although they realized there was a better way to do those as well. So no documentation, meaning no giant PRD, immediately has some interesting outcomes. First of all, it means that the most valuable part of the project is actually implemented. That was not always the case with Waterfall, since Waterfall's approach to prioritization is efficiency, not value or risk. So if you operationalize this in such a way that the software is always working in some way, always in a releasable state is how the Agile people put it. That's why they talk about working software in the Agile manifesto. Then you can get your first release out a lot faster. For a product company, that means faster revenue, which is great. But it also means faster feedback from the market or your users, if you're doing internal development, about whether it does what they want. And that is also great because you don't want to find that out a year from now. You want to find that out as soon as you can. And of course, it also means that that the team can discover problems, such as requirement problems, early on before a lot of investment has been made, and they can be managed much more easily. So Agile, as I've described it, handles change a lot better. In fact, it really was designed to know to handle change. So, And what do we know about change? Well, it happens. So Agile is naturally better suited to the real world where we aren't good at making estimates and where change is normal and happens all the time. But, of course, there are some trade-offs, and these can often make selling Agile to your executives challenging. For one thing, so it appears that Agile uses less documentation and is less predictable. Now, this lack of predictability is really tough for executives to handle, and it's one of the biggest challenges when transforming an organization to be really Agile. Irrespective of what the organization says about itself, lots of organizations using Scrum and talking the Agile talk are not really walking the Agile walk. 
that's a topic for another conversation. Now, as one of my LinkedIn friends mentioned, the flexibility, that is, the ability to react to change afforded by Agile might come at the cost of long-term commitments, and Agile won't deliver more than is possible, no matter how much management whines. But the reality of unpredictable is a little bit less straightforward. So remember that most waterfall projects failed, well over half, and I think that's optimistic. So waterfall project management has this beautiful veneer of predictability, but it has the reality that most projects run via waterfall approach fail, and those that don't are more often than not very late and deliver less value than expected. So how about Agile? What can it predict? Well, if it's done well, meaning if the value part of the equation is managed well, what any Agile methodology can promise is the following. In any given period, we will deliver the most value as fast as possible. Now, what does that mean? Let's take it from the back. As fast as possible. Every development team has a speed at which it can deliver, assuming it's well-managed and resourced. Now, they may be faster than average, or they may be slower than average, but they're working at their speed. In particular, they cannot deliver software faster than they can. There's a limit beyond which they can't produce. This is just a reality, like a law of physics. So, they're going to work as fast as possible on what? Well, they're going to be working on the most valuable requirements they can in order of value, most valuable first. That's what we're doing with Agile. And they're going to take those requirements to a state where they're releasable. That's another piece of Agile. At any given time, there will be a releasable version of the software which contains the most valuable features in the product that we were able to come up with up to that point. Any features remaining are, by definition, either less valuable or they've arrived recently and weren't known earlier, so they couldn't have been worked on. Now, this claim obviously depends on the correct understanding of value, which I'll talk about in a little bit, and this is really the product manager's domain to determine the value of priorities. Now, to have a successful Agile program, you just take that whole thing and repeat it on fairly small time increments, like two or four weeks, so you find the most valuable things you could work on, you work on them for two to, three, two to four weeks until they're done, and then you look at the list again and you say what's the most valuable maybe reordering it if you have to taking into account new things work on that for two to four weeks and so on and so forth at any given time your team is working on the most valuable feature they can because it was prioritized as such by you the product manager so the product manager let's talk about our role in all of this so for agile to work of course you have to be able to stack rank the backlog as they say meaning you and it is you the product manager have to prioritize the work so the most valuable work can be done first. Well, prioritization itself is a big topic, and I'm not going to get into it in this episode. So let's move along with the understanding that to be effective, you have to be good at making that determination of what's the most valuable thing to work on. And the reality is it's not really you doing the prioritization in some sense. You are out there listening to the market, listening to stakeholders, really understanding the problems that your product solves and needs to solve understanding how users are really using your product and where they're getting stuck, knowing about the environments your ideal users work in, their expectations, and combining all of these inputs, all of this is data, some of it's quantitative, some of it's qualitative, to determine the most valuable thing you can deliver next, and doing that over and over again. So I understand this is an important topic. When I ask my connections on LinkedIn for their questions and wants for an episode about Agile, most of the comments boil down to how to prioritize more effectively and how to bring stakeholders along with those prioritization decisions. So obviously, I will do a follow-up episode about prioritization where I'll handle a lot of those questions. In the meantime, there are some earlier episodes of the podcast you might find useful on these topics, which I will share in the show notes, which again, 
secretsofpm.com slash 90. So in my notes here, I have a long sidebar about application development versus product development. This distinction, or rather in practice, unfortunately, the lack of distinction, comes up over and over again when people are talking about Agile. Lots of people write about Agile in the context of application development, which means developing in-house applications. But they still use words that sound like they're talking about products. Now, it turns out that there are lots more software developers working in application development, building in-house applications, than build products. It's hard to believe, particularly if you live in Silicon Valley where everybody is a software engineer. But the fact is that every big company has a large number of people that are doing development work on their internal applications. And they use Agile, and it works. Agile works great for that. Now, the thing is, I am only about products in this podcast. I'm about things that we build to sell to a market. And I'm talking about Agile in the context of building products for sale, and there are significant and important differences and challenges if you can confuse the application dev-related talk with the product dev-related talk. One key point, and this again came up in all the LinkedIn comments, is that product managers are not the same as product owners. Product owner is a terribly named term from IT application development, in other words, internal applications, and it means someone from the prospective end user's team, somebody from within the organization, who will make prioritization decisions on behalf of the team, and this works fine when the end user of the project is a well-defined team in a company. The product owner definition and practices start to fail when the end users of the product are one of many at many different companies, all with different business processes and goals. I actually do have a certified Scrum product owner certification, long expired at this point, but it has had pretty much nothing to do with what I do as a product manager working with agile dev teams. So that's all I'll say about it in the episode, but I'll share a write-up about this super important distinction in the show notes, and you can read about, more about it there if you want. So let's get back on track. One thing I want to say is our job is not to be an agile product manager. Our job is to deliver value fast, no matter the methodology. Now, we might work with agile teams or we might not. And there's no question that some methodologies are better for delivering agile fast and some are worse. But often we have little influence over the methodology. And we often find ourselves working in a place that says they have a methodology, usually agile, but it's actually not what they say it is. So one thing about product managers, we have to be very adaptable. Because if our teams like to work in a certain way, part of our skill set needs to be getting value from a team that works in that way. You know, we can't change the devs, typically. Maybe we can influence them a little bit. We do have a lot of influence. But this is an area where we actually don't have that much influence. I mean, developers are one of those groups of people that has some built-in conservatism, often for very good reasons. You know, big changes can not only be cognitively disruptive, and cognitive disruption is a really big enemy of software developers, but they can also be dangerous for the code itself in multiple ways. But the point is that our team is going to be working in a way that they've either developed and refined themselves, or that's coming from their management. Too often that happens. And our job is to get value at the door despite that. So obviously our goal is to create a backlog of highly valuable features for them to build, ordered by value. And we're responsible for one very important thing from the team's perspective. St really stating clearly what the most valuable feature is for the team to work on. Now, when I say the most valuable feature, it might be a couple of features or it might be the things at the top of the backlog. You know, they don't typically work on one thing at a time, although that's actually 
a best practice in a lot of agile methodologies. But the point is, they're not working on everything. They're working on a small set of things that they can finish within a sprint or within over the course of a couple sprints. Now, the other aspect of that is we want to make sure they understand it correctly so they can build a great solution. And that has multiple parts as well. Now, from the PM's perspective, the product manager's perspective, Agile is good because it's focused on delivering value fast, which means if we can take value to market fast and get money from the market faster and we'll learn faster with the short feedback loops that we get. But it shouldn't matter to you what Agile methodology your team uses. Your role in Agile is determining what's the most valuable thing to work on right now and communicating correctly to the team the why and the what. But that's not the end of the story about product management and Agile. You know, sometimes we have to be Agile even if our team isn't really Agile. That's the bottom line. We're sort of Agile incarnate. What does that mean? Well, we always should be focused on value. We work on the highest value things we can at any time. There's always a lot more stuff that we could be doing that we don't have time to do. And so we have to be really good at prioritizing our own time to make sure that what we work on is the most valuable thing we could. Now, sometimes this is actually writing feature specs or requirements or stories. But sometimes it's going out and talking to the market. And sometimes it's working with the sales organization. Often, in reality, it's a mix of all those things. But even then, you still have to prioritize your time. So we always want to make sure that we're working on the most valuable thing or things we can, we can be at any given time with constant reflection on what's most valuable now. And another reminder, you know, we are not actually on the dev team. Our allegiance is not really to our team, although they are big allies for us. But our allegiance is really to the revenue of the product. In fact, it's not even the revenue. It's the profits that our product makes. So we always think about product managers working with the dev team. I used that term previously, our team, to mean exactly that. But the fact is that sales is our team, too. They sell our stuff. They have to be trained how to do that effectively. And we're often the ones that know the best about some of the challenges they're facing. Marketing is our team also. They have to find good quality prospects for our product. How do they know who makes a good quality prospect? Well, we have to tell them based on our market research. And then they use their magical marketing skills to get the right people into our sales funnel. And obviously, it's not just sales and marketing and dev. Everyone is on our team, or we're on everyone's team. You know, I assume you're like me, and you have a backlog of things you could do that you want to do that others have asked you to do. But you know you could never complete all the things in your backlog if you had 10,000 years to do them. And I don't mean just the backlog of stories, but the backlog of all the activities people want you to get involved in. So we have to be agile incarnate, agile personified, and work to create and manage our own backlog of activities, ignoring the less valuable things, the thousands of less valuable things, and focusing on the most valuable things we can do right now. A couple other things. I mentioned in the opening that Agile doesn't cause the team to get faster. The team's improvement, though, comes about because you're doing two things. One is you're not having the team work on stuff that's not very valuable. But there's another aspect that a lot of scru- a lot of Agile methodologies include, which is focusing actually on improving the team as well. So maybe Agile, if you follow the methodology, that part of the methodology does help the team go faster. But the fact is you can get the same impact for the team by doing team improvement exercises in a waterfall organization. It's just that the impact of the improvement will be different because of how a waterfall project is scheduled. So there's sort of two threads combined in these agile discussions, maximizing the value of the results the team delivers and continuously improving the ability of the team to deliver. 
So I've talked about the value already, but what about improving the team? And they're often, these are separate, but they're often munched together in the Agile discussions. Why is this? Well, for two reasons. First, if the team is focused on delivering value fast, this can often motivate them, which can result in better and faster delivery. The team is more interested in delivering value if possible. But the real learning leverage comes from retrospectives or debriefs. I've talked about these in various episodes before, links in the show notes. Retrospectives aren't necessarily an agile thing, but if you're using an agile methodology where you have rapid sprints, it's easier to have more retrospectives, and that results in faster learning. And it's much better to do learning near the actual experience. So that's about agile and learning. I think the biggest value of agile from the standpoint of getting good quality out the door fast, aside from the fact that you're asking the team to work on relatively smaller amounts of stuff at a time, is you're having them work on the most valuable stuff that there is, and you're going to explain it to them, why it's so valuable, and they're going to understand that, and they're going to be able to create better solutions because of understanding the meaning and the reason behind what they're building. So how can you put these ideas into action? So this is a little bit of a think piece of an episode, but I don't want to leave you hanging with no way to apply this mental model which is work on the most valuable thing you can to delivery and repeat. So there are three or four aspects that combine to help deliver on the promises, not predicting the future, fast-paced iterations, making sure you're always working on the most important thing or things, and continuous learning. If you have those four things, you get agile as a side effect, and you also get more effective teams as a side effect, and you also get more revenue faster as a side effect, and you also get higher value products to market faster as a side effect. So, again, what those were, not predicting the future, fast-paced iterations, making sure you're always working on the most important thing or things, and continuous learning. So it's all side effects. You can also flip it around and say, how can I get higher quality products to market faster? Well, you do the four things I just listed. How can I get my teams more motivated and help them improve? Again, the four things I just listed. How can I stop failing in my predictions of what we're going to deliver? Again, the things I just listed. So if you then break those down, you can have specific steps for each one. And here are three things you can focus on doing. I hope you're already doing these, for, to be honest. First of all, to get higher quality products to market faster, the best thing to do is to focus on adding the highest value capabilities to your products. And you get two benefits from this. The first is that you aren't working on lower value stuff. So the time you and the team spend is intrinsically higher value. The other is that because they are working on higher value stuff, the team is naturally going to be more motivated. So that's the first thing. Just focus on value. Maybe I'm already telling you something you already knew, probably. The second point is to get the teams more motivated and help them work faster, you have to do two things. One is you have to give them more valuable stuff to work on. This is naturally more motivating, and you have to not only give it to them, but help them understand how and why it's more valuable. Now, the second thing you have to do is help accelerate your team's learning cycle. And how do you do this? You accelerate the cycle of review and learning, typically with retrospectives. And oftentimes, that's not actually in your control as a product manager, but you should encourage it on the part of the team. Now, for the third thing, to stop failing in your predictions, you need to stop trying to predict the future and instead describe the outcomes you are enabling or working toward. Change your predictions from we'll deliver features A, B, and C to we'll deliver the most valuable things this team can deliver for the customer over any period. Now, we may not know what those things will be, but our methodology will ensure they are the most valuable things in any timescale. Now, you can actually often be more specific than that. We are working on delivering awesome reporting capabilities, 
Then we'll start working on our UI refresh unless something more important arises. Now, you're not going to say what exact the exact features are in your reporting refresh unless you've already built them and you know they work. And you don't necessarily say what your UI refresh will be in terms of features, but you know that that's directionally going to be the most valuable thing unless something more important arises. So those are three things you can start doing today, or you're probably doing them already. I hope this little review of the first principles of Agile project management has been useful and given you some new insights. I definitely was excited when I started to think about Agile this way. Lots of scales from, fell from my eyes. And I'd been doing Agile for a long time at the point that I read that Dean Leffingwell book. So it was very valuable for me. Let me know if you found this useful. You can drop me a line on the site at secretsofpm.com slash 90 or let me know on Twitter or LinkedIn. I'm Nils Davis on both. Check out the show notes for links to the books I've mentioned, links to some other podcast episodes. Also, the sidebar about application development versus product development, and also links to get in touch with me if you might want to do a little coaching taster via my uh, consultation link. So all those things, love to hear more from you, and I'd love to hear your ideas and your thoughts about what I presented in the podcast episode today and what you'd like to hear me talk about in future episodes. Really love to get your input on that. Thanks very much for listening. Until next time, this is Nels Davis. Bye-bye.